0: I've never found a way to drink water in front of a group of people with any sense of dignity. It always feels funny. I've not been here long enough, nor do I feel comfortable enough to start bringing up a cappuccino to the pulpit, but uh, I'm warning you, that day is probably coming. Brethren, we have been embarking in the remarkable privilege of studying and examining the subject of grace. As we've been evaluating and considering our name, Sovereign Grace Bible Church, we have been going through each word and considering how powerful these words are, how remarkable these words are, how biblical these words are, and how much this name really conveys a remarkable message as we engage with the community around us. We can tell people that we're Sovereign Grace Bible Church and tell them why. Why are we Sovereign Grace Bible Church? By itself, it's a great opportunity for discussion. And so we've been talking about the subject of grace and to do so, we've been looking at and have been focusing on Ephesians 2, and obviously there are many other sections of Scripture that we could be, could have been consulting. But, but here I think that we have a remarkable description of and teaching regarding the subject of grace, where the Apostle Paul, after describing our depravity... As the children of wrath, he then comes to that remarkable adversative where he says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus, in order that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. So we talked about the relationship of mercy, love, and grace. We talked about how it is, as we have often said, and we often hear, that the word kadis, grace, means an unmerited gift. But by virtue of the fact that it's related to Cairo, which speaks of the idea of joy, there is the inferred notion of grace as that which brings about joy. Someone who has been graced with a gift is normally a joyful person in view of the gift given. And trust me, there are some gifts that I've been given that I wasn't too crazy about. If you give me a some tickets to a Dodgers game, I may not know what to do with them, but uh, no offense to the Dodgers, but... Uh, But the the grace of salvation, the gift of salvation, we have every reason to give thanks. Because of all the gifts that have ever been given to us, there is none greater than the grace of salvation. And so it is that we talked about this relationship of the words mercy, love, and grace. We talked about how it is that God's love is an outflow of his mercy. And that therefore, when you take all these components together, clearly grace is a gift that we could never merit. And then we talked about, last time, we talked about the humility of our, our confession in view of these truths. Since it is a gift that is given to us by God, that it is not of ourselves, it is a gift of God. And then he says in verse 9, not as a result of works that no one should boast. Here again, we come to a very important concept. The children of God don't go around and say, oh, look at me. I'm so wonderful. Look at all the things that I'm doing. Look at all the uh, such that they're taking this, all this in, and absorbing this as as being their own doing. Those who are the children of God, if they ever do anything that is good and that bears fruit of any kind, we must give glory to God. Everything else is ours, <laughs> but this is our joy. As a child of God, we understand that any good that we do, it is ultimately from the Lord. And so all of this annihilates and destroys any notion of boasting. And then we talked about, and we spent a little bit more time talking about this last time, but we then talked about how Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 impacts our own lives, our communion with God, and our outreach with the lost. Concerning our own lives... As we think about the idea of this salvation being a gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast, that should help us to think about on a daily basis the wonder of God who gave us this gift of salvation such that we then mortify on a daily basis this notion of boasting. I believe that we need this on a regular basis because there's something within the human heart that wants to take credit for things that are not ours. And that's why we sang and we ended the service with with the hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. The hymn writer says this, My richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. We need to pour contempt on our pride because we need to mortify and battle against pride on a regular basis. Every one of us. I do. We all do. We then talked about how these verses impact our communion with God. Like I said, there are some gifts that maybe we're not too crazy about, although we may appreciate the intentions of the gift giver. But when it comes to the gift of salvation, when we study and evaluate more and more and more the gift that God has given to us, the deeper our love will be for the gift giver, the greater our adoration and appreciation for him will be. And the deeper our worship will be. Brethren, meditating on the gift that God has given to us, the person and work of Jesus Christ, is needful. That's why, again, we ended with the hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. What does a surveyor do? He evaluates and studies the land before laying down the blueprint for a building. But you first have to study and evaluate What is there before you even begin developing a blueprint and begin construction? We need to, before we get out on a daily basis and walk in our daily lives, evaluate carefully what God has done for us. And think about the manner in which Christ suffered in our stead for our sins. And so we sang last time contemplating and evaluating the cross of Christ, Jesus himself, see from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? The answer is no. There's no greater sacrifice ever made, no greater gift ever given. Brethren, from day to day, Let that be our meditation and let us grow in our devotion to our Lord in view of these things. And finally, all of this impacts our outreach to the lost. We talked about this last time. If we're not boasting in our works, we're also acknowledging something else. Whatever good we do, that's from God. As for our former manner of life, the Apostle Paul said, and we don't want to miss what he said at the beginning of the chapter. He says, among them too, having described the realm of human depravity, he says, "Among among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. And then he says, even as the rest. We're all in the same boat. When we talk to people about their need for Christ, we need to remind them of the fact that we need him just the same. It's all the same. And I'm not saying to anybody else that I'm any better than they are. We have to be very careful that that's clear. Because scripture makes it clear. Even as the rest. We're all in the same boat. By the way, as you're getting to know me, by the way, it's not about me, but I want you to understand why am I leading with hymns at the end of the services. It's certainly not because I'm God's gift to the world for singing. You already know that. I'm doing that because I want to strengthen our connection and tie between the scriptures and what we sing. As we sing various psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, we need to think about those that actually elevate and exalt God, and the rest um, we can leave aside. And that's a careful process that has to be done. It's, it's an important aspect of my ministry to you here in, as we worship the Lord together. But I do believe that it's a key aspect of our life and ministry as a church to think about everything that we say and do and sing. Now, where we've been, I've mentioned here already, but where are we going? Well, the next verse, that's where we're going. Verse 10. Paul says this in verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. You know, it's remarkable when you think about it. Now Paul is talking about works, and he was just saying that we're not saved by works. Clearly he's saying that. But now he's saying to the saved, to the redeemed, you've been redeemed in order to render the fruit of works. We've got to get this straight. We've got to get this right. We need to make sure that we're not getting the cart before the horse, as the expression goes. Paul mentioned our former walk. By the way, this is the first time that he uses the word walk in the entire epistle. He mentioned it at the beginning of the chapter where where he said, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked. What is the word walk talking about? He's talking about, and this word is used basically to describe the manner or conduct of life of an individual. And so he's saying, let's go back into time Dear saints at Ephesus, and let's look at what you were doing. How were you walking? Well, you were walking lockstep and marching to the beat of the satanic drummer of this world. And that's where you were. That was your walk. Now he's saying, but you were redeemed. God, out of his mercy, his love and his grace, he redeemed you. And he's given you a new walk. He's given us good works, he's foreordained and established good works that we would walk in them. You were going this way, God has ordained that you go that way. In a sense, if I may suggest an imperfect analogy, and all human analogies are imperfect, but in a sense, Ephesians two ten is like a bridge. We were over there on the bad side of the equation, on the bad side of the road. The bridge of salvation God ordained, he created, he established. Why? To what end? So that we would traverse that bridge and go the other direction. A direction in which we are following our Lord and walking after him. Not this world. And all of this is ordained of God. All of this was designed by him, created by him. And it is all for his ultimate glory. And so this morning, we're going to be talking about this beautiful and glorious bridge. This bridge of salvation and the very purpose for which this bridge was designed and made. And so first of all, we're going to consider is the text. I'm just following the text This is what I endeavor to do whenever I'm preaching out of the Bible. I'm just following the text. The first thing we need to think about is what Paul is teaching us, and that is the question, who designed this bridge? Who designed this bridge? Well, it is obviously the Lord, but we need to think about the manner in which it was designed to better appreciate what God has done in establishing this bridge of salvation. Then we need to think about how and when it was designed. How and when it was designed. We know that God designed it, but we need to think about how and when it was designed. It was created in Christ Jesus, the good works that he ordained, and it says that God prepared these beforehand. He prepared these beforehand. And then finally, we need to consider the very purpose that this bridge serves. Why have we been Made to traverse this bridge to cross over from our evil walk to a walk of good works well the ultimate chief end of everything here is God's glory which we've already been talking about but following the text we'll talk about that finally at the end but let's go to the beginning of verse 10 here and let's think about who it is that designed this bridge and consider some of the implications of what is stipulated here in this verse the Apostle Paul says, for we are his workmanship. Having talked about how it is that we're saved by grace through faith, that all of that has been ordained by God, if he says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Now, look at that expression where he says, we are his workmanship, we are his workmanship. Underline or just highlight or just keep in mind that word workmanship. That word, that English word, represents the Greek word "poema." Poema. Now, poema is a word that is commonly used in the New Testament and the Greek translation of the Old Testament simply to speak of the idea of any kind of creation. And particularly, it's typically used to speak of God's act of creation both in in a cosmological sense as well as a redemptive sense, the Hebrew word "asah," which we see repeatedly in the creation narrative, also appears in Exodus chapter twenty and verse eleven, where the Lord, where it says that for in six days the Lord made or asah. And in the Septuagint, the word poieo is used. "The, the, The Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. God made it all. There are lots of words that speak of God's work of creation. And many of these same words are used both with respect to the creation of the heavens and the earth, and also with respect to God's creation of life within us, his redemption of us. With respect to cosmological creation, we know and understand that God creates the heavens and the earth for an ultimate purpose. It is ultimately for his glory. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring The work of his hands day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. Look up in the heavens, you see that not a single star is missing. And what are you seeing? You're seeing the silent message of the fact that God made these things and they display continually his power, his might and his wisdom. But we must also understand that the very God who made all of these things redeems sinners and makes them his own possession. And that is a remarkable miracle. And our salvation, as Paul has already told us, has already taught us, our salvation is designed, it was established, so that in the ages to come, he, God, might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Here again, he is displaying his glory through his redeemed people. So in both cases, when we talk about the creative work of God, whether we're talking about cosmological creation or redemptive creation, it's all from God. It's all by his omnipotent power. But there's a bit of a distinction between the two. When we look in the heavens, what are we seeing Psalm 19 calls it a, a silent sermon. Day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words, their voice is not heard. I've, I know that some astronomers have recorded the sound of like quasars and various objects in the sky, but these are things that we audibly can't hear. The, the concept is you look in the night sky and it's It's quiet. It's part of the beauty of a silent night. It's just looking in the night sky and just enjoying the silence if you're not in the city anyway. And seeing this beautiful array of the heavenly hosts. He made it all. And it's a message that silently conveys the wisdom and power of God. But brethren, we have been redeemed as the people of God not to be silent but to walk conduct ourselves, and speak the glory of God. To talk to others about the glory of God. To speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with our heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord, Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. That's our privilege, is to walk, conduct ourselves, and use our mouths so that God is glorified. By the way, there's a reverse side to that principle. Paul spends an awful lot of time, and all of Scripture spends a lot of time, renouncing the use of our mouths for destruction, gossip, slander, being a tail bearer. No, we've been redeemed to use our mouths to glorify God, to walk in a manner that honors and glorifies Him, and this is our privilege You know, we recently, I I began here talking about the jealousy of God and the jealousy that he has for his glory. I honestly, I didn't have a, a sense of where else to begin, because I think that that's such a fundamental idea that it seemed most fitting God is jealous about his glory. And so why the heavens and the earth? Well, because they do in fact convey his glory. Why does he redeem us? It is because he is a glorious God and he delights in displaying his glory. And so he's rightly jealous to receive the glory for the heavens and the earth and he's rightly jealous to receive the glory that is due to him in view of his redemption among his people, we, listen to those words again, we are his workmanship, poema. Let me uh, introduce you to a, an illustration that's somewhat inherent in that word. The word poem is derived from the Greek word poema. And it kind of illustrates what we're talking about. A poet creates a poem. And what is a poem? Well, a poem isn't just any literary uh, prose or composition, it is a carefully crafted literary work that is structured, usually metrical in nature, and formulates various thoughts, ideas, and feelings from the author. You can think of it in those terms. We are his workmanship. We are God's poem. He is writing and crafting a poem through his people. Why? So that it would be about us? No. So that people would see a changed life whereby beforehand we walked according to the course of this world, but now we walk after and follow our Redeemer. And as people read that poem, Our prayer should be that they would ask us about the poet, because that's the point. Paul's already established the fact, and I've already stipulated it, but again, why is he doing all this? In order that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That's the point. Hey, you're not like the other people I know you know, I see that you don't do this and you don't do that or you do do these things, and what, why? Well, I'm just a, be, a good person is never the answer if you're a child of God. The answer is I'm his workmanship. He's writing his poem, and I'm imperfect, and whenever I get in the way of that scripted poem, it's, that's me, but everything else, if you see any good, that's his poetic wisdom and power. It is designed by him and it is for his glory. Now, when and how was this bridge of salvation designed? Not only does Paul say that we are his workmanship, his poema. But he says, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. He prepared these things beforehand. You know what this is talking about? This is talking about the immutability and perfection of God's wisdom in establishing and decreeing our salvation. You know, if you ever listen to a health, wealth, and prosperity preacher, they end up humanizing God to the point where they make him out to be a, a, a small, a, a deity with a small D, who just is planning, has plan A, plan B, plan C, and he's just trying to make things work, and he's pulling the levers of providence, and not really sure what he's doing. This is one of the reasons why I think it's very, pres- it's very much a prescription, a, a health prescription, to read texts like Isaiah 40, where the question is raised, who can be compared to the Lord? No one. He's not a man. He's not like us. He's not pulling levers and trying to make things work. No, he ordained that we would be redeemed for good works, and it is all according to his sovereign will. The word be- beforehand, proetoi masen, speaks of God's immutable sovereign will as established in his perfect wisdom. I, I, I think that's kind of the best summary I can give you, but that's the idea. It speaks of God's immutable sovereign will as established in his perfect wisdom. And it is used throughout scripture uh, in, as an example in the Septuagint in Proverbs 3.19 it says that the Lord by wisdom founded the earth by understanding he established and there's the word there's our word he established the heavens it speaks of this idea of the fact that, that, that God is not the God of the deists you have heard about de- deism where God just creates things and then he just walks away and just says to the, the, the world and creation good luck hope everything works out No. God sovereignly created and he sovereignly by his providence sustains what he created. You have to keep that in mind. You know when you read about a lot of the early church, or excuse me, early church fathers, early American fathers that uh, you hear them talk about God, most of these men were deists. The things we're talking about would have been alien to their thinking and meaning when they spoke. It's unfortunate, it's sad, but It is the truth. One of the things that we see repeatedly in Scripture, and this is key, God predetermines all things according to his infinite wisdom. We know this, but I'll say this. This is a truth that we know, but I'll I'll say this. I don't know that we meditate on this enough. I, I don't think I do. That we think about the fact that God set in motion everything, and he's still there. He's still sustaining his universe, ordained all things, and is guiding all things by his sovereign providence. And there's no sense in which he takes a vacation from this duty, this work. When we think of this word, proetoi masen, think of the word blueprint, because that's kind of the idea here. God has a perfect blueprint, established by his perfect wisdom. Before a building is ever made, you have a blueprint. The blueprint is drafted and crafted in order to have a design and anticipate all the the loads that are necessary in terms of the walls and everything and, and the size of the building and the dimensions of the building. All these things have to be determined beforehand, before you start nailing nails into wood and Laying foundations and do, doing all these things. And God's blueprint is perfect, down to the last detail. Sadly, we heard reports this week about the submersible that sadly was crushed by an implosion near the ocean floor as they were trying to find the ruins of the Titanic. The Titanic itself, do you remember this? I'm sure you do. It was referred to as an unsinkable ship. Well, that's a scary thing to say. But such is the pride of men. One of the reasons why men, individuals thought that this was an unsinkable ship is because it had 16 watertight compartments inside the ship, and this was a design feature that was considered to, be, to, to make it unsinkable. It was really a very clever design. And I would have to go back into the history of it, but I think it was somewhat of a unique design at the time. However, there was a key deficiency in the planning of the building of the Titanic. The wrought iron in the rivets that they used to put this boat together had three times today's allowable amount of slag, which is the glassy residue That's left behind after the smelting of iron ore. As a result, in cold temperatures, the iron ore in these rivets became very brittle, especially at cold temperatures. And so when that boat hit the iceberg, the shearing forces just were too much. Those rivets just popped and broke. You could have had 32 watertight compartments, but with the hull of the ship being ripped open like that, that unsinkable ship sank within three hours. Such are the plans and designs of men. God's blueprint never falls short. It is an expression of his immutable power and unending wisdom. And so what we're learning from this text is, is that God's foreordained blueprint was established so that he would save a people for his own possession and redeem them and place them on a new pathway, a new walk that is in accordance with his own glory and wisdom and, 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 and his righteousness. It is a cha- transmission, a trans- transformation. I'm sorry, I'm, I should have had that cappuccino. <laughs> it is a tra- transformation from a walk of co-belligerence with this world to a walk of righteousness, a walk of good works that were created in Christ Jesus. Now think about that word "created." The works that God has ordained, they were created in Christ Jesus. Here again, this is another term that is used to speak of the idea of God's work of creation. It is used oftentimes to speak of cosmological creation, the creation of the heavens and the earth. It is also used to speak of the idea of God creating in us life and transformation. I think one of the simplest ways to understand what we're talking about here when we talk about good works that were created in Christ Jesus is this idea of the fact that, that we're, we're created to be imitators and followers of Christ. So, so in other words, the works that we're now doing are along the pathway where our Savior is leading before us as our good shepherd. That's the new life. The life that we're living is one that is trailing behind Christ. And I think the simplest way to think of what we're talking about when we talk about these good works that were created in Christ Jesus is this. Jesus said what? My sheep hear my voice. And they do what? And they follow me. That's pretty simple, isn't it? But that simple and beautiful statement, I think, summarizes what we're talking about. God has placed us on a narrow pathway. It is the narrow pathway of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's our good shepherd. He's leading us. He's given us ears to hear the voice of the good shepherd. And it is now our joy and delight, rather than to resist him in enmity, but to follow him. And to do so as willing servants. And why is all this true? It is true because, as the Apostle Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a... Here he uses the word katidzo. Same word that we're talking about here in Ephesians 2.10. If anyone is in Christ, he is a kine katisis, a new creature. The old things have passed away. That old path is gone. New things have come. This is God's work. It's his doing. And that's why it's all to his glory. Matthew Matthew Henry is therefore right when he says God in his new creation has designed and prepared us for good works, created unto good works with a design that we should be fruitful in them. All these things were created beforehand. All these things were foreordained by the perfect knowledge and decree of God. Paul began, by the way, with this very idea In the first chapter, he says of us as the children of God, as the saints of God, he says that he, the Father, chose us in him, that is Christ, before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before him. This is his design. We're holy and blameless as those who are justified by the righteousness of Christ, but as those who are justified... We are to live holy and blameless lives as those who were created in Christ Jesus for good works. You know, Paul uses these same words in Philippians chapter 2, which I mentioned last time, where he says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent. Children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. That's why we were redeemed To be lights, to be poems, to tell people that if there's any poetry in our life, anything that they might admire or appreciate, or maybe it it may be something that provokes them and makes them irritated because the gospel provokes them, whatever the case may be, we need to let them know that anything that we're ever doing that is in conformity with the will of God, this is from him. Regarding Ephesians 2.10, Calvin rightly says, Holiness, purity, and every excellence that is found among men are the fruit of election, not its cause. It's not that God was looking through the quarter of time and saying, Oh, that one will work out. I like that guy. Oh, this one, he's, he's stellar. Look at the works on that one. No, all our works are counted as filthy rags. And we are all condemned as the children of wrath. And this is why we're heralding in this text the mercy, love, and grace of God. Because that's the only reason why we're redeemed. You know, there's much that needs to be said about the relationship between faith and works. We're not saved by works, but those who have genuine faith do bear forth the fruit of works. Have to be careful not to reverse those ideas. A lot of people do. A lot of debates have been had over this subject. Trust me, I've been on the receiving end of this debate. I have uh, uh, the brand marks of this over the years uh, of having to contend with people who are quite sure that we're somehow redeemed by our works in some capacity, some way. It's these. They're humbling. They strip us of all our pride. And they help us to glorify the Redeemer, who alone deserves glory. But this is God's purpose. To redeem his people to the end, that they would give him glory by means of good works. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So it's here that we come to another point of this salvific bridge. We talked about who designed it. We're his workmanship, his workmanship, the Lord's workmanship. We're his poem, poema. We talked about how and when it was designed. It was designed before the foundation of the world in Christ Jesus. What is the ultimate purpose? Well, the ultimate purpose, as we've already said, is God's glory. But the means to that end of his glory is this, is that the works that God has created and foreordained, what are we to do with them? We should walk in them. We should walk in them. But without this bridge of salvation, there's no walking on that path. And it is a bridge that is not traversed by our works, nor it is by means of a false faith in a false God who somehow saves us by the amalgamation of maybe 80% of Jesus' work and 20% of my effort or 99% of the work of God and maybe 1% of my effort. No. It is only traversed by grace through faith. And that is the gift of God. It's his bridge, and he drew us across it so that we would walk after him. Brethren, it's important, and we'll talk about this next time, but faith is merely the instrument by which we receive salvation. And by itself, it's not meritorious. Paul says that having been justified by faith or by the instrumentality of faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ it's the same idea we cross from enmity to peace that's his emphasis in in Romans chapter 5 chapter 2 in Ephesians we went from evil works to walking in newness of life all these things point us to the work of God Clearly, by the time we get to verse 10, it is obvious that we are not saved by our works. But redeemed people walk in good works. And again, that order is important. You're not saved by those works. But if you're a saved person, you will bear the fruit of good works. And you won't do it immutably, and you won't do it perfectly, and you won't do it sinlessly. John says, if you say you're without sin, you're you're lying. But he then goes on to say that there's a big difference between the children of God and the children of the devil, and they're evident. They're not perfect, the children of God, they're not perfect, but you know what? They're going in a different direction entirely. That's the point. Consider with me some implications of these truths. I believe that our understanding of these truths is absolutely essential. Understanding the nature of our assurance, then, is really very much tied to these concepts. I often tell people that there's a sense in which the scriptures teach an objective assurance as well as a subjective assurance but that the order of these two is important. We first go to the objective assurance of our salvation. What is that objective assurance? Well, it is something that is outside of us. It is something that God has done on our behalf. It is that, that very assurance that that young lady, as I mentioned last time, that young girl in Okinawa, did not have. When I talked to her and I asked her, are you, are you a Christian? and she, That was like the biggest question in the world where she was thinking about it, and she said, I'm not sure. Baptized five times, walked down the aisle five times, rededicated her life all these different times, still not sure if she was a believer. Why? Because instead of looking to the finished work of Christ on the cross, she was looking at herself. That was her primary focus. You know, preachers, uh, teachers and churches, preachers who preach moralism above the gospel are undermining the gospel. They're sending a message of confusion. If your focus is on moralism, if you're focusing on good works without looking at the cross, surveying the cross, considering the finished work of Christ on the cross, then you're going to produce a bunch of people who are just looking at themselves, introspecting constantly, and wondering if they're saved based upon what they're doing. This is not where we begin. We begin by looking to Christ and his finished work. We have to. Our salvation is not as a result of works. By the way, that text in verse 9, it's interesting how it reads. Um, it's literally, uk ex ergon. Not out of. Not out of. In fact, uh, that same expression is used as I was looking at that. I was thinking about John in John chapter 1, where he talks about our salvation. He says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born using the same preposition, ek. Who were born not out of blood, nor out of the will of the flesh, nor out of the will of man, but out of God. There's nothing that we can do to save ourselves. All of this flows out of God alone. Imagine if you were sitting in a restaurant and a server came up to you. And asked you if you'd like to have your glass of water refilled. And you say, why, yes, please, I would like that. And then they take this large empty pitcher and they start moving it towards your glass, going through the motions and tipping the pitcher and pouring absolutely nothing into your glass. I think in that moment you would think to yourself, what is wrong with this poor soul? They're pouring nothing into my glass and they don't seem to understand that. You might think that there might be something wrong with this person. That's kind of how humanity is. We tend to think that we can pour into the cup of our salvation and add to it. The reality is there's nothing we can add. No merit that we can establish whatsoever. In fact, the only merit that we possess is that which condemns us if we're looking to our own works apart from him. Again, our righteousness are as filthy rags. That's objective assurance. We need to look to the finished work of Christ. Go there first and establish our sure sure foundation of assurance in him. But then we come to the subjective assurance that Scripture repeatedly speaks of and where we're called to examine our lives and evaluate whether or not we're actually practicing righteousness or walking in a manner whereby we're actually following Christ. John says if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who also practices righteousness literally has been begotten out of him. Why does this person walk in this way and walk in this path and follow in these good works? Well, it's because of him. Paul says, all who are being led by the Holy, by the spirit of God are the sons of God, where he enjoins people to consider the deeds of the flesh versus the deeds of the spirit. We have to evaluate these things. And James confronts false believers and says, what use is it? My brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works, can that faith save him? In other words, he's saying, listen, if somebody is running around saying, I'm a believer, I'm a believer, I'm a believer, and there's no fruit on the tree, he's saying, is that person really saved? Is it really the case that that person has had and currently has genuine faith? A lot of controversy, unnecessary and unneeded controversy, has swirled around what James is teaching versus what we've been setting in Ephesians 2. And all of it is just simply unnecessary. You just have two different perspectives of the same subject. All that James is doing, he's asking the question, the man who has no good works, did he ever traverse the bridge of salvation by grace through faith? Can it really be that that person has been brought across that bridge of salvation such that their profession of faith matches what they actually possess? And his answer is no. They went out from us so that it would so that it might be known that they never were of us. So, brethren, I believe that for our own souls, we need this contemplation on a daily basis. It is transformative, transformative for us to contemplate these things from day to day. And finally, the very The very reality of what we've been looking at, the ultimate and chief end to which all these things point, as we have said time and again, is the glory of God. As we contemplate our lives, we must ask if we are becoming more and more of a poem. A poem that gives glory to God. A poem which reveals the very attributes of God, his Love, His mercy, His grace. We who confess that we have been redeemed by grace are we gracious to others. In the end, these works to which we were called, the very good works that have been created in Christ Jesus that we should walk in, these are the things that we are to engage in out of love for Christ Knowing that as we walk, it is a communication of and manifestation of our love for the Savior. He who has my commandments, listen to this, he who has my commandments, and then he says, and keeps them. Think of the distinction between the two. You can have commandments, the commandments of God in your brain, You can listen to them and hear them and know them up here. But keeping the commandments means walking, living, conducting yourself in a manner that is consistent with the commandments. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and disclose myself to him. Think on that, brethren. Every time we endeavor to walk in a manner that honors our God, we are expressing our love for Him. And mark this that love that we are expressing to Him first came from Him. That's what we've been saying all along. We love Him because He first loved us. My Jesus, I love Thee. I know Thou art mine. Let me say that again. My Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine. That's quite a statement, isn't it? For thee, all the follies of sin, I resign. My gracious Redeemer, my Savior, art thou. If ever I love thee, my Jesus tis now. 364. Let me ask you to look at the rest of the verses. Hymn number 364. Verse 2, I love thee because thou hast first loved me and purchased my pardon on Calvary's tree. I love thee for wearing the thorns on thy brow. If ever I love thee, my Jesus tis now. I love thee in life. I will love thee in death. And praise thee as long as thou lendest me breath. I love that. Lendest me breath. The breath you're enjoying right now was not owed to you, nor to me. God is giving it to you. And say when the death dew lies cold on my brow, if ever I love thee, my Jesus tis now. And then the great ending, in mansions of glory and endless delight, I'll ever adore thee in heaven so bright. I'll sing with the glittering crown on my brow, if ever I love thee. My Jesus, sis, now. Are you prepared to sing this hymn? Then let's do that. Let's stand together. Let's stand together and sing this to the Lord. And the last verse, we're going to sing a cappella. Okay.
1: My Jesus. Jesus, I love Thee, I know Thou art mine. For Thee, all the follies of sin, I resign. My gracious Redeemer, my Savior, first loved me, and purchased my pardon on Calvary's tree. I love Thee for wearing the thorns on Thy brow. Jesus is now I'll love thee in life I will love thee in death and praise thee as long as thou lendest me breath I'll sing of glory and endless delight. I'll ever adore thee in heaven so bright. I'll sing with the glittering crown Jesus, now.
0: Precious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you first loved us. It is a miracle that you loved any. For we were at enmity against you, rebels in your universe, deserving nothing but wrath out of your justice. Father, thank you for sending your Son Thank you for the great love that you manifested in sending him and the great love that you conveyed in redeeming us. We don't deserve it. It's not by works. And should anyone ever ask us why we are different in any capacity, if there's any good and praise that we receive, may we point to you and remind others, Lord, that any good that we do, it is from you. And it is entirely for your glory. O Lord, grant us the grace to keep these thoughts and meditations on our own hearts. We ask that you would continue to enable us to walk in a manner that honors you. Father, thank you for the privileges that we have had here in considering these things. We now ask that you would bless our time of fellowship, the meal itself, May everything be done for your glory. We ask it all in the fair and precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless, blameless, with great joy. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and Majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever.